Welcome to Christian Medical and Dental Association's Chapel. We trust this message will encourage your walk with the Lord. I've been in a year-long series with our church on the Sermon on the Mount, and so you're just going to get an excerpt from that, um, from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. This is what God's Word says. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is a lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, the whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is God's Word. Um, you know, how do I summarize context uh, in a year-long sermon? Uh, let me just catch you up a little bit. Jesus, I think, in this sermon has been describing uh, for us what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom. And, and I think the key, at least to me, the key thing that stands out throughout this sermon is that Jesus says that we, if we are citizens of his kingdom, we are to approach God as our father. It's, it's our adoption into his family as his beloved children that frames the context for really everything that Jesus is teaching here. And I think what he's urging on us, as he was with his own listeners, is that to the degree that you can live and act and remember and believe as if that's true, that he actually is your heavenly daddy, to that degree you will be able to enjoy and experience the blessings of being adopted into his family. But, but even more than that, I think that You'll, you really will be delivered from two of life's most pressing temptations. In the first half of chapter 6, which we're not going to look at, uh, we see how intimacy with God as our Father rescues us from trying to get our, our, our identity, our life, from doing our religious activities in front of men instead of uh, from God. Temptations that come from the flesh inside of us, um, from the schemes of the evil one to try to earn a reputation in the sight of man in the hopes that maybe God will be impressed with how we're living, um, maybe sometimes because we're afraid that God will reject us if we don't. And so we desperately need a, a relationship with God as our Father to remind us that we belong and that He'll never abandon us. But, but now here as we get into the second half of chapter 6, He's dealing with, I think, the second major temptation that we often face in the Christian life, and that is just being distracted by the worries and the cares of this world. And as you guys well know, there are lots of them. And, and let me just set the context for this sermon a little bit for us uh, by, by talking about what I mean by even the world and, and its worries and its cares. See, Jesus, up to this point, has already made it very clear uh, in this sermon that we were designed by God for the purpose of relationship with Him, with in intimacy with Him. You know, just as a, a bird was designed for the air and, and a fish was designed for the water, in relationship, in community with God, is the element in which we were truly created for. God designed us for intimacy uh, with Him. We weren't designed to go off on our own and to seek life apart from Him. Because you see, among really, among all His creation, only mankind was uh, designed after the very image of God. 
We're a reflection of who God is. And intimacy and community with our Father is the very source of life for us. Uh, but, of course, the story of, of mankind is, is one of rebellion. We rejected uh, that relationship with God. We um, sinned against Him in the Garden of Eden because, I mean, think about it. What was the original sin that started this whole mess in the first place? It, it was the lie that we can find life and joy uh, that only God can provide, but we can provide it without God's sticky fingers wrapped around it. It was a lie that we can find all of the life and the validation and the security that our hearts long for without having to go through God to get them. And when we believe that, God, that lie, it, it broke something in our hearts. It broke that relationship of intimacy and it replaced it with the lie that you can find life all by yourself. And of course now with all the attendant shame and fear of exposure uh, that comes from failing in this quest because, you know, Humanity is now defined by, what if I can't find life in that? What if I'm not good enough? What if I fail? What if people reject me? What if I'm too much of a victim of oppression uh, to be able to succeed? And, and, and you see, when validation in life comes from what we achieve instead of what we receive, it puts us on an incredibly unstable ground of self. And listen, here, here really is the source of all of our troubles in this world. Everything that has been created in this world, including all the things that mankind has developed through harnessing uh, all the natural resources that God gave us, everything was made after the image of God. And so because of that, it's, it's innately attractive to us, right? Just like a body of water is attractive to a fish. But you see, because our, our, our rebellious hearts no longer seek after th the maker of those things, because that relationship comes with strings attached. You know, he's our father and we're his children. And we don't want to be under his authority anymore. We want to be under our own authority. So here's what happens. Be because everything in this world reflects the imprints of the creator that we were designed for, and because our rebellious hearts want them without God's sticky fingers wrapped all around them, what we do is we begin to turn to all the images of God, the, the latent fingerprints of God found in all the things that he's made, all across creation. And you see, the lie of the evil one is that the images are just as good as the original. In fact, they're even better because now you're in control instead of God. And you can have all the good things from God, all the good things that God produces, love and joy and security and achievement. You can, you can get all those things without all the rules and the regulations from God that's going to hold you back. You see that, you know, the joy of sex without the boundaries of sex, the, the joy of personal expression without the boundaries of how he designed us to express that life, uh, the satisfaction of achievement without all of the messy rules about how we have to interact with these other people along the way. But, but you see, here's the rub. Images and pictures and reminders of beautiful things cannot fill us with that beauty. It can only remind us that that beauty exists, and it can call us to seek it. And, it, and those images draw us in with the promises of beauty and life and joy, but it's just a picture. And pictures only ever promise the hope of something beautiful. They never actually deliver it. I mean, try falling in love with a picture of somebody. You're not going to get a whole lot of intimacy out of it. 
You know, as is often the case, nobody puts this better than C.S. Lewis. Let me just quote from him. He said, in speaking of this desire, which we find ourselves even now in, I feel a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when in very intimate conversation the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward uh, and affect to laugh at ourselves. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it is a, it's a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. But we cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it. And we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that settled the matter. Wordsworth's expedient was to identify it with certain moments in his own past. But all this is a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would have not found the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. What he remembered would, would turn out to be itself a remembering. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trusted them, because it was not in them. It only came through them, and what came through them was longing. These things, the, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not yet heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. And you see, th this is our lot in life. We, we are addicted to things that can never satisfy. We're held captive by the lies of the good life, of success and beauty and achievement, whether it's from family or money or security, but we're addicted to things that can only ever remind us that it exists. It can only create a deeper longing to actually experience it, but they can never deliver it. And as a result, we are spiritually and emotionally and relationally starving to death feasting on mere images of food and beauty that our hearts long for. But fall in love with a picture and you'll starve. And listen, if this plight were not bad enough, our situation is actually worse than even this because it's even more devastating than the fact that we have a natural attraction to things that can never deliver what they promise. The Bible tells us that evil is actually alive and active that it's not just out there as a thing, but it's pursuing you proactively with these lies. It's more than some inanimate attraction in beauty out there, but it's actively pursuing you in order to consume you and deceive you. As the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians 6, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, this whole addiction that we have to the lies uh, of images that, that can never really satisfy are really the main weapons that the evil one uses in order to destroy us, to tempt us with images of God, reminders of God, pictures of the thing that we were made for, but without the satisfaction of his presence. And he's there to tempt us with fleeting reminders of the joy and the security and the satisfaction that 
that can be had and can be experienced but never held on to. It's constantly slipping through our fingers. We live with hope, with promise, with expectation, but we actually only hold disappointment and despair and disillusionment. And see, this has been the core sin uh, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, that you can have what God offers without needing to go through God to actually get them. And we're hooked by that lie. And so the question is, what do we do about it? And unfortunately, I think the primary solution that our, our particular Appalachian culture offers to deal with this problem is simply to withdraw from the world. Don't get too close to it or it might taint you. Live a life of purity and isolation from all of the evils that are going on in the world around you. That's the way to protect yourself from the evils of the world. But the solution that Jesus offers us here is something altogether different. His solution is simply this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, what does that mean? How is that a solution? Let's look at the positive and the negative. See, the the negative command here is simply, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. And, And when Jesus here is talking about treasures, he's not simply talking about money, though you know, that, I'm sure that's included, but he's asking, what are the things that your heart most treasures? It certainly could be money, but it might be your reputation. It might be your family. It might be your career. It could be your relationships or seeking the love of another person. See, what you have to do is you ask yourself, what would cause me to lose it if I lost it, right? What thing would be the most devastating to my heart if it were taken away from me? What's the one thing that if it were taken away, I I would be crushed? I I, I don't know if I could go on if I didn't have that. See, there's nothing wrong with wanting a healthy family. There's nothing wrong even with pursuing money. There's nothing wrong with any of these things, but it's your attitude toward them that matters. And see, Jesus calls them treasures because, well, they are treasures. They're valuable. They bring joy and, and happiness because they all reflect the beauty of God. But what he's asking here is, where are you drawing your life? Are, are these things images that remind you of God, or are you looking to them to draw life from them? See, do I draw my life from how well my kids are doing, or how well my business is growing, or how happy my marriage is, or do I draw my life from the deeper hope that all of these things merely point to? See, we're, we're supposed to have flawed spouses because they point us to our ultimate spouse. We're supposed to have parents that get it wrong because we've got an ultimate parent in heaven. Our friends are supposed to uh, disappoint us because we have the ultimate friend. Everything is designed to point us beyond itself, not to itself as the source. And so Jesus calls us to draw our life from being an adopted child of the king. Now, see, what, what we're asking here, and I think what Jesus is getting at, is can you look through the things of this life that bring you joy, as C.S. Lewis puts it, to be able to see the real joy and the lasting security and the unending love that they all point to? Or are you still trying to suck your life and your joy out of those things in in and of themselves? And you see, when Jesus uses the term here, lay up, lay up for yourselves treasures, it it means what are you you counting on? It's it's an accounting term. What are you banking your life on? because we all tend to look for something to be our one thing. You know, you remember that, that movie, City Slickers, Curly's One Thing? And his life is about one thing, 
Of course, he never tells us through the whole movie what that one thing is, but this is that one thing that he was talking about. Everybody tries to find some specific niche that, hey, I'm better than most people at this thing, and so I'm going to put all of my identity into this, and I'm going to start saying, hey, at least I'm this. I mean, other people aren't, right? And it becomes who we are, our source of identity. And so, you know, as Christians, we might even say things like, you know, I'm, I'm not really a child of the king who happens to be gifted at being smart or wise or patient or loving or industrious, but I'm a, I'm a smart, wise, patient, industrious person who happens to be a child of the king. See, which, which way is it? The, the difference can be devastating. See, what is the core source of my identity? Where do you send, tend to draw your sense of value as a person? What, what are you banking on to be able to sleep at night with a clean conscience? That's what he's asking. And listen, don't think we're just talking about things that you can turn to out there in the world because one of the main ways I think that Christians fall into this trap is by, by coming to God and turning to religion and turning to the church and asking, okay, I, I couldn't get the things my heart wanted out there in the world. Everything always disappoints me. Maybe if I come to God and give myself to him, maybe he will give it to me. And see, we're just using God to get what we really want in order to pursue that one thing that still dominates our hearts. Listen, even churches do this, is they use God to try to become the latest and greatest version of Christianity in their town. have to admit, even preachers do this, is they use their congregations and the affirmation and the feedback of their people to get a sense of joy and satisfaction that only God was ever designed to provide. See, it's deep inside every one of us, and Jesus is reminding us here, do not lay up for yourselves any treasure in this life as your one thing, as your main thing, as your source of life. Rather, he says, and now we turn our attention to the positive, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Don't bank on anything in this life for your life. Rather, bank up for eternal life that's still coming. Now, what in the world does he mean by this? How? It's kind of confusing. How can we lay up treasures now, today, for heaven some other day in the future? And I, and I think actually he's talking about something here. The Bible uh, mentions quite often elsewhere it, this, this whole idea of receiving rewards. And, and I think we tend to misunderstand this because for us, when we think our, our ideas of heaven tend to be our own personal nirvana, where we get to enjoy our own private utopia of all the things I ever wanted to do and experience. But that misses the point of heaven because the point of heaven is community. It, it's community with God and it's community with one another where we're actually living in perfect harmony of relationship. In fact, let me just turn your attention to a very obscure uh, parable that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 16 to illustrate this. Our Bible entitles it the parable of the shrewd manager, but it's essentially about this guy who is a manager and who finds out I'm about to be fired from my job. And he realizes, you know, I'm not, I'm not strong enough for manual labor, and I'm too proud to beg, so here's what I'm going to do. And he calls in all of his creditors, and he quickly negotiates their bills down to a lower level because he says, at least after I get fired, I'll have a bunch of people who will gladly welcome me into their homes after I lose my job. I'm going to have lots of friends out there. And Jesus actually commends him for his shrewdness. And I think the implications of this parable are that we should be investing our lives now in the treasures, uh, whatever they might be, in such a way that 
when you arrive in heaven, the people who benefited from your investment will be there to welcome you. They will even be there to heap praise upon you. It's kind of weird, huh? And, and see, I mean, this appears to be the reward that Jesus is talking about, seeing the, the beauty of what our life's investments have accomplished in the lives of others. And I think there are other passages that confirm this. Take 1 Timothy 6, for example, uh, where Paul says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And see, Paul here is telling us that laying up treasures in heaven are, are investing in eternal rewards, which he says are this seeking the good of investing in other people instead of the selfishness of only investing in, obviously, yourself. Or take what Jesus says in Matthew 25 in that very familiar passage where he talks about, you know, feeding and clothing and housing Jesus. And people say, when do we ever do that? And he says, whenever you did it for one of the least of these, you did it for me. And again, here he seems to be uh, talking about the eternal reward uh, of heaven and that it's the joy of seeing the beauty of what you produced with your investment in the lives of others. You remember that place where Jesus tells his disciples how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? Because what it takes to be a citizen of his kingdom is to be poor in spirit. That's how he started this whole Sermon on the Mount. That's the only way that you will be able to invest beyond yourself into the lives of others. If you start the kingdom by saying, I am so poor in spirit that I need Jesus and his grace. And you let that fill you up instead of your kids and your jobs and your career and all the things that the world runs to. And it reminds me of that great quote by Jim Elliott right before he was martyred for bringing the gospel to a remote tribe of cannibals in the Amazon. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Listen, what does all this mean? I I think it means that our ultimate goal as citizens of Jesus' kingdom is eternal glory, not temporal gain. Um, You know, you remember what it was that marked out those people who belonged to the great hall of faith in Hebrews 11. It says, by faith they kept their eyes on an eternal city. They they lived on earth as pilgrims, like they were just passing through. And I think what Jesus is calling us to here uh, with his call to store up our treasures in heaven is to remind us that this world is not our home, so don't live as if it is, but rather invest in what lasts. Invest in the lives of the people around you. Live for a better world that's still coming. Because, when you see, when you live for eternity rather than today, it, it makes you a steward of everything that you have now instead of an owner. And you're not protective and defensive about all the things in your life. In fact, you can much more easily give it away because I'm just a steward and I can pass it along. It's not mine. I mean, isn't this just, just what Jesus tells us elsewhere in the parable of the talents? Right? See, how can I invest what has been given to me into the lives of others rather than just burying it to protect myself? And one day, we're, we are all going to have to give an account to God for how we used and served and invested all the gifts and talents and opportunities that he has given us. And see, I think the question that we need to be asking ourselves here today is, am I a child who has been placed here on earth in order to serve the purposes for which God 
made me? Or am I just here to get for myself? Listen, it is an incredible privilege to be a caretaker, a custodian of what God has given to you. And so invest it well, serve others well, love others well, give generously of everything you have. That's the only way your treasures will have any lasting value. But you can't do it as a discipline. You can't do it as a, as a job to take on. The only way that you can love and serve and invest in others the way God calls you to is to be so filled with God's love for you that you don't have to go out in the world and get it anymore. And so investing in others isn't a job. It's not a discipline. It's not a duty. It's just the overflow of being filled up by his love for you. Because you see, this is what keeps the things of this life from becoming the center of my world, from becoming the source of my life and my joy and my validation. You got to hold on to all of these things loosely. You can certainly enjoy them, and you should enjoy them. God intended them for joy, but you can't let them own you. And so I think one of the ways to tell is can you share them generously <laughs> with those who are around you? Are you willing to give them up freely in exchange for real, lasting treasures in heaven? And, and listen, as we close here, let me just point out that Jesus isn't asking you here to do something that he hasn't already done himself, right? He, he himself gave up all the glories of heaven. He gave up all the security and joy and satisfaction of being in his Father's presence. He willingly laid all of that aside in order that he might come and serve you by giving you what you had no ability to secure on your own. See, you were looking for life in faint pictures of glory and goodness, but never satisfied, always grumpy and empty on the inside because it just doesn't work. It never satisfies. It doesn't last. But Jesus came as the very embodiment of that glory to give you the life of perfection that you owe to God and to pay the penalty for your rebellion against him in order that the wall of separation between you and God, which is our sin, it's our pride, our self-serving attitude, it's all about me, that could be torn down and community with God could be restored. Listen to how the writer of the Hebrews puts it. Right at the end of that list of the faithful in Hebrews 11, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. See, how can you walk through this life without being overcome by the cares of the world, without becoming weary and losing heart? He says, consider Jesus. Remember what he did for you. Because look, why did Jesus endure all this? Why did he go through any of this to begin with? Why was he willing to leave the joys of heaven and take on flesh and blood with all of its limitations and frustrations for the likes of you and me? Why? Well, he tells us in verse 2, it was for the joy set before him. That's what made him do it. Well, what was the joy? It certainly wasn't coming to earth. It certainly wasn't dying and suffering. His joy was you and me. See, it was out of love for you. Because of the joy of the eternal investment in what you will become, he gladly gave it all up in order to get you. And if you've been rescued by that kind of love yourself, why would you hang on to any temporary kind of love as a substitute? If you have this kind of love, why would you look to any temporary source of security in this life? 
You have been rescued and given everything that you need. Everything. And Jesus' call, therefore, is to do the same. Give yourself away for the eternal investment in the lives of those around you because those are the only treasures that will not burn up and be wasted away. Let's pray. Lord, we, you know, we love hearing this, but we have to confess we're pretty selfish and we don't like giving our time away. We don't like giving our treasures away. Um, we just don't like to be bothered because we are so self-consumed and it's, it's a shameful thing to admit, but if we're honest, we have to. And I pray that you would so fill our hearts each day with a reminder of your gospel love that it would fill us up to the point where we're not hungry, we're not searching, we're not trying to get, but we are so overflowing with your love that it, we're pouring into the lives of those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.